This episode marks history for The Ruling Podcast. It's the first ever time that I've brought on a Florida Gator to the show. And, you know, while I bleed garnet and gold, it was actually a really fun conversation. You know, it's a, it's amazing how we went 45 minutes and never never got into an argument about FSU and Florida. But, you know, I say that in jest. And in today's podcast, a uh, guest was Christy Dosh, who was a graduate of the University of Florida Law School. And uh, she really is an expert on the business of college sports. She started her career in corporate law in Atlanta and then went on to become the first female business reporter for ESPN. Uh, she currently writes for Forbes, among many other entrepreneurial endeavors that she has going on between writing and public speaking. But she she did found the website, The Business of College Sports. And so on today's podcast, we focus a lot on, you know, in the first half, just talking about her career in corporate law and how that helped her develop some of the skills that she now has uh, later in her career. But for the first 20 or so minutes of the podcast, we talk about her corporate law experience. And then after that, we dive into college athletes, NIL, and what, uh, you know, could be the ramifications of that. So I actually met Miss Dosh at the University of Florida's uh, Entertainment Arts and Sports Law Symposium. And so University of Florida was kind enough to let us uh, Seminoles come over there for the day. And Miss Dosh spoke on NIL uh, as somebody who has really spoken to a lot of athletics departments about it, as well as college athletes and former college athletes. So she, she really is an expert in that field. And so for the second half of this podcast, we went through you know some of the recent moves going on between the state of Florida signing their NIL bill, which will take effect in the summer of 2021, as well as some of the NCAA's recent moves and potential proposals that they are considering. Uh, we, we talk about maybe the amount of money that these players could be making, what that could mean for athletic departments, as well as what that could mean for departments maybe cutting programs. Uh, you know, we, we also looked into maybe college players unionizing, uh, so so we, we just jumped into a lot of different NIL stuff. And I think anybody who's interested in college sports, anybody who is interested in corporate law at all, is really going to enjoy the, this podcast. Miss Dosh did a great job. And, you know, as a public speaker and for somebody who worked with ESPN and as a journalist, she did a really good job, uh, you know, communicating with me and, and talking to me about a lot of these issues. So, uh, you know, this is my seventh episode now of the ruling podcast and i'm thankful for where this podcast is going uh, you know you can always follow me at rule 0021 on twitter to keep up with it or you can follow and uh, message me on linkedin just to talk about anything sports law related uh, you know again this podcast the ruling podcast is part of a greater structure of uh, a website called the sports blog that i recently started about a month or two ago, which uh, it gives law students as well as attorneys a platform to talk about sports law and to network about sports law. So I'm happy to have my podcast on that network. And if you're interested in the sports blog, make sure that you look it up on LinkedIn. Or again, you can reach out to me personally on Twitter or through LinkedIn, and I'm happy to share it with you. But uh, I'm really excited about this episode of The Ruling Podcast, and I hope you enjoy.
Well, Miss Dosh, you began your career in corporate law, uh, you know, working at Nelson Mullins and Taylor English Duma. You know, tell me a little bit about that time in your career, what you liked and what you disliked. Yeah, you know, when I went to law school, I, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer from a really young age. And going into law school, I thought it would be fantastic to be able to combine being a lawyer with working somewhere in sports because I was a huge sports fan. And I think a lot of us go to law school hoping there's some way we can combine our passion for sports with our law degree. And for me, that ended up looking like an internship with the WTA tour um, during my second summer and a published article in a sports law journal, but it, it didn't translate into a full-time job offer, um, or at least not one that I was <laughs> interested in accepting. Um, I do have to say I did get an offer to work in the sports world full-time after graduation, um, but at a rate that was pretty equal to what I got paid as a paralegal before I went to law school. <laughs> so I just felt like with student loans, that wasn't a viable option for me, and I'd had a really great half summer at Nelson Mullins during my second year. I had split between the WTA tour and Nelson Mullins and just had a really fabulous experience with the people there and kind of fell in love with an area of real estate finance and decided that I would take their offer and return to Atlanta where I was from and go to work at Nelson Mullins. And, you know, as much as I wanted to work in sports, I will never regret the time that I spent at Nelson Mullins. It was an incredible environment, especially as I have uh, you know, I'm years removed from it now and no experiences that my friends have had at other firms. Nelson Mullins taught me a lot about business development and about how to approach the practice of law um, somewhat from a business standpoint, but they were very entrepreneurial and a lot of their clients were really entrepreneurial. And so I think I learned a lot during my time there that has served me as I have left practicing law and gone on to being a sports business reporter and then also owning my own PR agency. Right, right. And so, you know, obviously that's a unique experience to be able to work in big law in a big city, you know, in Atlanta. Um, you know, I, I saw that you went to Georgia Southern, right? So do you kind of grow up in Georgia? Was Atlanta a market that you were interested in uh, in you know, law school? Yeah, I was just say I grew up right outside of Atlanta, and so um, went to Georgia Southern. I actually only went there for a year, and then I transferred to Oglethorpe University, which is in Atlanta, and always knew that even though I was going to go off to law school somewhere else because I felt like I needed to live somewhere else for at least a little while, uh, I always knew that I wanted to return to Atlanta if possible. So I went to UF for law school and then took an offer from Nelson Mullins to come back to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. And talk maybe a little bit about that big law experience. Uh, you know, you mentioned some of the skills you learned there have really helped you now in, in de developing your own kind of business entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, what are some of the things that big law taught you straight out of law school? Yeah, I feel like I had a good experience there in a number of different ways. You know, as I look back, I think the most valuable thing I got there was partners who truly mentored me. They weren't just giving me busy work to do. They were teaching me not only how to practice law and how to um, you know, be a good lawyer from the standpoint of, you know, I was drafting loan documents. So, you know, creating these loan documents and, um, you know, drafting contracts and closing, you know, loopholes and things like that. But also I learned a lot about how to manage clients, how to talk to clients, 
how you manage expectations, how you deliver bad news. And then I think they did a great job of letting us come along when they were courting a new client and being able to sit at the same table and listen as they talk to a prospective client. I learned so much just sitting and listening. And I know that not every firm gives you that opportunity. So I've always been really grateful that the partners that I worked with at Nelson Mullins really wanted to teach us how to be a well-rounded attorney from a number of different perspectives. And like I said, they were a very entrepreneurial firm for a firm their size. And a lot of the clients that were on the corporate and the finance teams that I was on were very entrepreneurial clients. And so even though I had no entrepreneurial aspirations at the time, I can look back now and say that a lot of that rubbed off on me. So I think it's just the availability of mentors and then the availability of a lot of different areas of law that you get at a big firm because, you know, most big firms don't specialize in just one area. And I started on a, out on a team where I did commercial mortgage-backed securities, and this was in 2007. So it wasn't long before the market crashed, and my practice group didn't really exist anymore because commercial mortgage-backed securities didn't really uh, exist anymore, not in the way that we had been dealing with them. So I moved on to a different part of our real estate and finance team, and at one point, um, I eventually moved on to our corporate team and did more corporate work. And so the availability of you know, different areas of law and to learn about different areas of the law and to work with attorneys from different teams, you know, I think that's something that is a big advantage of working in a big law firm. You know, people certainly talk about the disadvantages too, um, but I, I think there were some great advantages and I'm glad that that's where I started. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that you hear a lot, I, I think, in talking to people in sports and in the sports industry that it seems a lot of sports teams or sports leagues would like you to get that law firm experience and just become a good attorney before you go and work for a sports team, right? And so do you think that an experience like that was extremely valuable for you and made you a better attorney than you would have been if you just went straight into sports right out of law school? Yeah, one of the reasons that I think that in sports, they like pulling in people from big law who, uh, you know, have been in different areas of the law is that, you know, there isn't an actually a practice of sports law. Sports law is just intellectual property and contracts and all these other areas of the law as it happens to pertain to sports. And so the advantage to being in a big firm is that you can get exposed to those different areas of the law. You know, if you went to a smaller practice, maybe it would only focus on intellectual property or maybe it would only focus on, you know, estates and trusts. Whereas when you're in a big firm, if you've got, whether you're representing leagues or teams or maybe you're representing individual players, you know, they're going to have different needs. They might have needs that fall under, uh, you know, more of a contracts or a corporate law kind of practice. Some things are um, going to be more litigation oriented. They're going to have, you know, estates that they need to protect. Um, you know, they have intellectual property they need to protect. So, all of these different areas of the law, you know, sports touch in some way. And I think being in a big firm is advantageous for the client because they're able to get to attorneys with these different specialties. But I also think it's advantageous for the lawyer because even if you're not practicing in all of those areas, you have the ability to go and talk to those other attorneys in your firm and learn more about what they do and how their work touches sports and how their area might be different than yours and how they work together. Um, so I just think that the sort of resources and the vast knowledge you find um, at the big law level sort of lends itself to sports. Right. And 
you know, you said that you had an internship with the WTA, you know, during law school. What, did you always envision yourself eventually being involved with sports law? And, you know, how did you try to implement that during your, you know, big law corporate uh, experiences? We did, you know, I always joked I wanted to be the first female general manager in baseball, and uh, there still hasn't been one, so I guess I could still be it, <laughs> but um, that that's not really my goal anymore, but going into law school, you know, I always kind of said that jokingly, but I loved baseball. I really wanted to work in Major League Baseball. I applied with teams all over the country, both in college and in law school, um, and unfortunately was never able to get an internship position in baseball, but ended up at the WTA Tour instead, and that was actually an interesting experience because in a way the WTA was sort of behind other leagues in some respects. For example, I spent a lot of my summer putting together uh, a, a sort of a code for all of the agents that were involved with the WTA and its athletes. They had never had any sort of agent code or any sort of uh, licensure process or anything like that. And so I had to go through what all the other pro leagues had come up with, read through what they had as far as rules and regulations or license requirements for agents. And then I drafted from scratch the agent code for the WTA. You know, that's probably not something I would have gotten to do at Major League Baseball. Not only do they did they already have, you know, an agent code, but I don't think they would have tasked that to an intern either, but the WTA only had two attorneys on staff when I was there. So it was two attorneys, uh, or no, I'm sorry, I take that back. There were three, three attorneys and then me as the intern. And so because it was a small department and we were all located in offices right next to each other, I think I got exposed to higher level stuff than I might have gotten had I been at Major League Baseball or maybe if, even if I had been with a uh, team in baseball. And so when I left the WTA, I did interview with a baseball team and have an offer coming out of law school to go work for a baseball team. Unfortunately, um, that's sort of the offer I was mentioning earlier, where the pay was so low, I really couldn't take the job with the loans that I had at the time. And looking back, everything worked out for me. So <laughs> I, I, I think I still made the right decision by not taking that position. Um, but I had always seen myself going to work in baseball. So I definitely had to kind of rework what I thought I wanted to do with my career. And when I went to work at Nelson Mullins, I really was excited about the practice area I was going into there. And I sort of tucked away my dreams of working in sports in like a file folder and and not that I forgot about it, but I was no longer pursuing it. Um, and then the downturn happened, and I was blogging about legal issues and baseball, and sort of things started to happen for me that eventually led to me leaving the practice of law and going to be a sports journalist. And, you know, that's not something I would have ever imagined. You know, I saw myself working as an attorney in sports, not being a journalist. Um, but, you know, you, you can only <laughs> you can only plan so far. Sometimes where you end up, um, you know, it's just something you never could have imagined or planned for yourself. No, absolutely. And I think all of us, we love to be able to plan kind of our lives out. Like we're going to do this, this and that, and then we're going to get here and everything's going to be great. But, you know, mm -hmm. I've, I've definitely learned even at like my age that that's not the case at all. I mean, I think just take the last three months as a really good example of that. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, how, if you were if somebody say in my shoes, you know, a first year or second year law student who is interested in doing sports work in a, in a big law setting, what would you suggest? How would you go about trying to do something like that? I think 
think regardless of what you want to do, sports or not, nothing's more important than developing relationships with people. And people talk about networking, but sometimes networking gets a little bit um, of a bad name because we think networking, we think, okay, go to a conference, you know, get a bunch of business cards, and then what? <laughs> um, so I always talk about it's building relationships. It's not just networking. It's being in the right places and meeting the right people, but then it's finding excuses to stay in touch with those people. Um, and that's actually how I ended up at Nelson Mullins in part. I met a partner from Nelson Mullins before I went to law school. Um, my mom happened to work in financial printing, actually still works in financial printing. And she was working with Nelson Mullins on a deal, and I had worked with them previously in a small firm where I was a paralegal. So I had sort of been exposed to Nelson Mullins. And just before I left for law school, uh, somebody from my mom's company introduced me to a partner at Nelson Mullins because he knew I was going to law school, and he thought it might be a good connection for me. And I don't think he could have ever imagined just what an amazing connection it ended up being. But that partner that I met, his name is Wade Malone. He's still at Nelson Mullins, I believe. And, uh, you know, unless something has changed in the last few months, <laughs> last time I checked, uh, Wade was still there. And I stayed in touch with Wade my whole first year of law school. I went to actually did my first year of law school out in California. I transferred to UF after that year. And I would email him from California and, uh, you know, either congratulate him on something I saw. Like, I think I remember he was in a journal article or maybe it was a newspaper article. And I saw that pop up on LinkedIn and I emailed him to say congratulations. And he ended up emailing me back and said, hey, how's law school going? And we ended up starting this sort of, you know, email back and forth throughout my first year of law school where, you know, he was telling me a little bit about what was going on with him and his practice or I would see something come up and I would email him about it and he would ask me how law school was going. And, um, you know, he let me know I probably was not a good candidate for Nelson Mullins after my 1L year. Uh, I think I applied. I don't think I even got an interview. But I ended up clerking for a judge that he introduced me to instead, and I had a great summer with that judge. He ended up writing me reference letters to uh, allow me to transfer. I transferred to UF, and right after I got to UF, we had on-campus interviews 2L year, and I told Wade, you know, Nelson Mullins is where I really want to be. I had had enough exposure to Nelson Mullins when I worked as a paralegal, and then through my conversations with him, I just knew that that was where I wanted to be. Um, and so he, I think, probably put in a good word to make sure I got an on-campus interview. But he said to me, there's nothing I can do for you past this. You have to get this summer associate role all on your own. You're going to go through the interview process just like anybody else would. They don't love transfer students. I don't know what we're going to be able to do for you. I mean, I, I really thought he helped me get my foot in the door, but that it was up to me to get the rest of the way. And um, I ended up getting offered half of a summer. And I remember at first being disappointed that Nelson Mullins only offered me a half summer because they did offer some people full summers. Um, but I was a transfer from a lower tier law school. And I guess they thought they were taking a chance on me. <laughs> so they offered me the half summer, but that allowed me to spend the other half of the summer at the WTA, which when I got the offer from Nelson Mullins, I didn't know the WTA thing was going to happen. But looking back, I see it was all kind of meant to be in a really sort of full circle moment. Now, the two attorneys that were over me at the WTA, one of them is now the head of NBA China, and the other one is the commissioner of the PAC-12 conference. And I have interviewed them both in my position 
as a journalist in years since, but I met them back when they were working at the WTA tour. So it's just funny how, again, you think you have all these plans in your head, but you can never imagine how the universe will sort of deliver you what you need. And I think I needed to split my summer between Nelson Mullins and the WTA tour. So sort of going back to the idea of creating relationships, um, you know, these people you meet along the way, not only do you need to make a good impression on them when you meet them, but find reasons to stay in touch with them because the sports world is so much smaller than you think it is. And you're going to keep running into these people over and over again. So make a good first impression and then find excuses to stay in touch with them. Yeah, I, I think that's awesome. I mean, that story is just a testament to exactly, I, I think, the way people should approach kind of the networking and relationship building uh, experience. You know, I think like you said, a lot of people are like, oh, networking, you know, and, and in a way it's, it's funny to me because I, I don't want to just like go around and try to meet people to try to help me out, right? Like I feel like I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm much more of a fan of like a natural relationship building kind of scenario where, you know, maybe I meet you and then you say, hey, let's go get coffee or like, you know, email back and forth kind of like you mentioned. And, um, you know, I, I think a relationship is a give and take kind of thing. Like I, you know, thankfully there have been a lot of people in the sports industry who have been good mentors to me so far. And I've been really impressed with how willing people are to talk to law students and to help them out and to, you know, introduce them to other people. And, you know, so in a way, I almost feel guilty because it's like, what can I, you know, bring to you? Like, I want to be able to help you out in some capacity. And so, you know, hopefully, you know, I I try to do that and I try to, uh, you know, help the people, the relationships that I make. I try to help them out in some way, too. And um, that's kind of what I go for. You know, you got to go a little bit deeper than just saying, hey, you know, I'm Hayes, you know, I go to FSU, like, do you have a job? You know, do you know people who can give me a job? Right? That's not, you know, that's not networking. That's just, you know, like you said, it, it's more about building that relationship with somebody. Well, just remember, too, the payoff doesn't have to be immediate. So just because you're the one who needs something from them right now, and you're right, don't, like, immediately go to somebody and say, how can I get a job with you? I mean, that's not the way to build a relationship. Right. <laughs> um, you know, you might be asking something like that down the road. You know, how do I get into your organization? You know, how what gives me the best shot? You know, who else do I need to meet? I mean, you can ask questions later after you've started to develop a relationship. But I think a lot of people, you know, when we're in the position of needing the relationships and needing the mentors and that sort of thing, we can be afraid to ask because we feel like they must be so busy and we don't want to bother them. And we're asking for something that seemingly only benefits us right now. But I can say as a person on the other end of those requests, sometimes like I go into classrooms and I talk all the time in sports management programs and at law schools, and I tell people, stay in touch with me, reach out to me. I want to know what you're doing. Let me know how I can help you. And I mean that when I say it. And part of the reason I can say it all the time is because so few people take me up on it. If everybody took me up on it, I probably wouldn't actually have the time to talk to everybody. But, um, you know, I met you earlier this year at an event at UF, their sports and entertainment law symposium. You know, I met probably 20 people that day who I like, you know, met them long enough to know their name and have a conversation about what they were doing in school and what they wanted to do long term. And three of you have reached out to me since then. 
So just to give you kind of an idea of how many people actually take that next step and take you up on your offer to help, you know, it's actually a pretty low number. And just keep in mind that the payoff could be years from now. Like I had interns back when I worked at ESPN um, and actually maybe even before I went to ESPN, I had a couple of people helping me with my website and research for my book. So that would have been like 2010, 11, 12, 13, something like that. Almost all of them work in sports now, and now there are people that sometimes I need to get in touch with and go through to get to somebody at a league or a team or in an athletic department. Like, those people got jobs in sports, and now they work places where now I need them. So even though they got more from me 10 years ago, now I need them, and they're repaying the favor 10 years later. So just remember that you're building a long-term relationship. You don't necessarily need to be able to give them something right now. You're building something so that down the road, uh, when they do need you, you know, you're there and ready to pay back the favor. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I love that. And I think that's absolutely true, right? Because uh, we're going to be in the business for a long time. And um, like you said, it is a smaller business. I have been surprised by how small kind of the sports legal world is and how a lot of the people tend to know the other people in the industry. So I've, yeah, I've, I've been really uh, happy to see how people are really willing to help one another and collaborate. And, you know, hopefully, you know, that's my goal to be able to be in a position, you know, in 10, 15 years where, you know, some of the people who have mentored me and guided me, hopefully I can give back to them or even, you know, give back to, uh, you know, incoming attorneys, right? Like, you know, be somebody like yourself right now where in, you know, maybe 10, 15 years, I can be in the same shoes and help out uh, some law students. Absolutely. Just paying it forward, I think, goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and so, you know, you you transitioned from corporate law more into like an entrepreneurship role and like this writing role, journalism, etc. So, you know, a lot of what you've done has been within the business of college sports. And so you've done a lot of writing and talking about the NCAAs, either paying players or just the NIL rights. So, you know, I'd love to kind of go into that a little bit with you and, you know, just kind of starting it out. Like, obviously, recently, there's there's been a lot of moves, both from the NCAA and outside the NCAA. So just from your perspective, what have you thought of some of the recent NCAA moves such as their proposal saying, you know, they might be willing to do NIL with these certain limitations, uh, you know, within it. Yeah, there's been conversations, obviously, for a number of years now, and the NCAA had said, you know, they were working on it, they were considering it, but really the state of California, uh, you know, sort of pushed the envelope and said, okay, you've got to deal with this now by, I think it was back in October, they passed their law and the governor signed it that starting in 2023, uh, college athletes in their state would be able to profit off of their name, image, and likeness. And then we suddenly saw bills pop up all over the country. I think there's um, over 20 or maybe now even over 30 states that have at least introduced something into their legislature. And I think a lot of those got slowed down by the pandemic, um, which was obviously a little more urgent concern. I think we may have heard of, had the pandemic never happened, I think we would have heard of even more states 
either getting closer to passing or actually passing laws. And so now we now have heard Florida, where uh, you and I both live, has passed a law that will go into effect next year. So earlier than California's, you know, I felt like California gave that 2023 date because they wanted to give the NCAA time to act on its own, because I think everyone sort of recognizes what a mess it would be if we were dealing with 50 different state laws that allowed different things or were worded differently. And so I felt like California was giving the NCAA the time it needed to figure it out. I don't think Florida felt that way. I think the people pushing it through in Florida uh, felt like it needed to happen sooner with or without the NCAA and that they weren't willing to wait around for the NCAA to figure it out. So um, the NCAA is pretty deep now in its process of coming up with internal legislation that would allow student-athletes to profit in some way off of their name, image, and likeness. But likely, whatever the NCAA comes up with is going to have more restrictions than what we see coming out of some of the states, you know, things that they are uh, restrictions they're introducing either for competitive balance or because perhaps there's certain categories in which they don't want student athletes um, having endorsements or sponsorships, something like, um, you know, marijuana based products or gambling, um, you know, that sort of thing that they might decide were categories student athletes should stay out of. So now I think what we're kind of waiting to see is the NCAA has been urging Congress to act and help it so that we don't have 50 different state laws that we're dealing with. And it kind of remains to be seen at this point whether Congress is going to step in or not. I sort of feel like they're going to, but I could be totally wrong on that. I just feel like um, you know, having 50 different state laws is kind of onerous and it's going to create some, you know, recruiting advantages and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, I would like to see whether it's through Congress or, you know, simply through what the NCAA passes, some sort of national uh, you know, guidelines and requirements versus having to juggle 50 different states, because I don't know how I'll keep up with it for my reporting. <laughs> right, right. No, I know. And I, I think I'm I'm with you. The most interesting thing about what's what's happened recently is, you know, Governor DeSantis in Florida signing the bill and it, it going into effect next summer, you know, so that's that's one year from now. And I think the biggest thing it does is really just put that pressure on the NCAA or even Congress to say, hey, we need to get a consistent uh, model out here across the 50 states so we don't have this crazy inconsistency that leads to, right, recruiting advantages or something like that. Because, yeah. you know, if you think about it now, you know, next summer, let's say nothing happens, come next summer, right, the state of Florida, Florida State, University of Florida, UCF, you know, those schools are going to get just an amazing advantage in recruiting. And, you know, we know that's probably not actually going to happen. You know, there will be something that happens before then now because the bill was passed. But yeah, I mean, I think, I guess we haven't heard a whole lot from Congress yet, but you almost have to imagine they'll, they'll do something, right? Like they, they couldn't allow for this kind of discrepancy. I keep thinking that, but nothing has happened yet. You know, it too, with the timing, you know, sort of like I mentioned with states with the pandemic, you know, Congress has bigger fish to fry right now. Like, is mm -hmm. this top of their mind? Probably not. So um, I, I don't know, you know, who that, who that gives an advantage to. Um, you know, I think certainly the NCAA is anxious to get Congress to act sooner rather than later. So I would imagine they're sweating it out a little bit, not knowing whether Congress is going to even take this up or not. Mm -hmm. And right, right. And you know, looking just more at the the practicalities of how all of this would potentially work, 
you know, something that you brought up in your discussion at Florida was the potential money that players could make from endorsement deals. And so I remember mm-hmm. you, you mentioning that uh, one marketer suggested that, you know, a power five athlete with at least 10,000 followers could make about two to 4,000 per month. So, you know, you looking at this from a business perspective, how how do you think those players making that kind of money would affect kind of the industry of college sports, both just from the player's perspective as well as from the athletics department's perspective? It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. I've had a lot of conversations with people from social media marketing firms, and I twice now have had on my podcast somebody from Open Doors, which is working with Nebraska to uh, do a program with their athletic department to help their student-athletes get ready for this. And, you know, while there are a handful of student-athletes, particularly football and men's basketball players, who will be able to command the highest rates, and, you know, somebody like your star starting quarterback could be looking at millions in sponsorship and endorsement kind of opportunities. It also sounds like there's a fair amount of opportunities out there for student athletes who have a presence on social media and maybe trend towards uh, specific niches. Like maybe it's a female who's very active on Instagram or YouTube as, you know, a beauty blogger, and they're going to have these opportunities to work with beauty brands. And so what I've heard over and over is that the money won't be reserved for just male student-athletes or just football and men's basketball student-athletes now because they get the most time on television and they have the most recognizable names and faces, they're likely to get more money. But, you know, my understanding is that essentially any student-athlete who really puts the time in to have a solid following on at least one social media network is going to have the opportunity to make some money. And there's all these unintended consequences that I'm sort of interested to see play out in terms of, you know, student athletes who are fighting with coaches over playing time or maybe even fighting amongst themselves. Um, I had a former Clemson student athlete on my podcast and he was talking about how in the locker room there were already these arguments about like why he didn't give, you know, a receiver, you know, more, more, more touches than he did in the first half or something like that. And that was with no money on the line. So now when you've got money on the line and the amount of time you're playing and, you know, making good plays and your face is seen on TV and your name is said out loud, now when you have money riding on that um, and the sort of publicity value you get from playing often and playing well, you know, what are those locker room conversations going to look like then? And what kind of rules are coaches going to have around when you can be shooting, you know, photos or videos inside locker rooms or at practice? You know, I think there's so many different things and it's going to take years for us to really see how this all plays out. And if some schools have advantages over other schools and how coaches are going to manage it and how the market's really going to react to it. So uh, you know, it's kind of a fascinating thing to get to sit back and watch. And I agree. I totally agree. And I think, you know, thinking about my own perspectives, you know, as a, as a former college athlete, you know, I was a mid-major athlete and I think the the playing time question um, is is definitely one that could be very interesting. I, I think even now with how scholarships are, especially for sports that don't have you know full scholarships for most athletes, mm-hmm. playing time and maybe coaches favoring certain athletes who have more scholarships, uh, you know, that is a discussion that goes on in locker rooms and. 
if, if it's a discussion and maybe a point of tension for just scholarship money, I can guarantee it mm-hmm. will be a point of tension when, you know, you've got real liquid cash on the line for endorsement right. deals, right? So right. Th- that Which is... Which isn't to say not to do it. You know, I, I bring those up right. and people get upset because they think I'm so anti-NIL. Uh, it's not that. It's just... There's all it's a it's a Pandora's box. Like there's all these unintended consequences, and nobody really knows how that's all going to play out. So mm-hmm. we'll see. <laughs> and that's kind of why you you kind of favored California waiting until 2023 to enact theirs because you felt like it maybe gave the NCAA some time to figure some of that stuff out. Yes, and you know as much as um, I I want to support what Florida's done because I live in Florida. Uh, you know, I just I want to see something uniform. I don't want 50 different state laws and some have advantages over others. I really want some sort of national standard, whether that comes from the NCAA and the states back off or it comes from Congress. I just want it to be you know, fair and equal across the board. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how fast either the NCAA or Congress uh, can get something done because Florida is really going to push them now. Mm-hmm. And from the athletics department's perspective, right, I think a lot of people look at NIL as kind of a nice middle ground because, you know, then you're not actually paying players and maybe it doesn't affect the athletics departments too much. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are discussions going on within athletics departments about how their budgets might be affected by NIL stuff. Is, is that a conversation you've had with some people in athletics departments It is. And I've heard arguments on both sides. I've heard athletic departments who are genuinely worried that some of their partnerships will dry up that say the local Chevy dealership only has X amount of money to spend on marketing. And the athletic department has been getting, you know, a specified amount. And now that amount maybe is going to end up split between the athletic department and an individual student athlete. No way of knowing if that's what's really going to happen or not, but that's definitely a conversation that's happening in athletic departments. And then I've actually heard more from, I would say, like mid-majors and even Division II programs um, that really are more reliant on that local sort of sponsorship money than maybe a Power 5 program is because they've got so much revenue coming in from other sources. Those mid-major and kind of into the D2 programs, um, when you get into the Olympic sports, I've had coaches contact me and talk about how concerned they are that it's going to impact their sport. And this was before the pandemic, and these coaches were messaging me and saying that they're worried that it'll take some of the money away from the athletic department and that that would result in sports getting cut. Well, now the pandemic, you know, with that happening, we've seen quite a few sports getting cut across all three divisions, but particularly Division One and Division Two. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I see the argument that there would only be a specific amount of marketing money to go around. And if some of it is going directly to student athletes, then it would make sense that maybe less would be going to athletic departments. But I've also heard arguments on the other side that if they're happy with their relationship with the athletic department and they feel like they're getting a lot out of it, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to take money away from that to then go work with a student athlete. You know, I think it's one of those things we just have to wait and see. And some athletic departments are probably going to be affected more than others, um, just depending on their local market. Right. And I, I think you make a good point in saying that mid-majors are probably the ones who would struggle a little bit more with that with, you know, a lot of them have those local car dealership deals. And uh, it's, you know, it's very viable that 
they decide, hey, let's give you know half of our money to the quarterback and half to the athletics department. I think it's it's a legitimate concern, but you like you said, I guess we just don't really know yet. Um, but I am glad that you brought up the idea uh, that um, you know a lot of programs have been getting cut around the country. You know, I know even in the Southern Conference, um, a school. I believe it was Furman maybe uh, cut their baseball program, which is amazing to think, right? Uh, and, and I'm sure that does have to do with COVID. Um, but how do you think, you know, given COVID and given maybe this NIL stuff coming up soon, it, could that result in some more programs maybe getting cut, programs that aren't bringing in a lot of money to the athletics department? Yeah, my understanding from talking to athletic departments and talking to some consultants I know in this space is that we've only seen the tip of the iceberg as far as cutting sports go. You know, I think there was a a period of time that predates me reporting on college sports when athletic departments actively added a lot of sports. You know, if you're playing at the FBS level for football, you have to carry 16 sports. Well, a lot of them are carrying 18 or 20 or 24 or 26. You know, many of them are carrying far more than they are required to carry. You know, a lot of that came during the Title IX era and adding women's sports. But then as athletic departments brought in more revenue and were more successful, they added more sports. They added more scholarships. You know, they supported more student athletes. And so a lot of them are doing what they're now calling right sizing. And they're looking at their budget and they're looking at the number of sports they sponsor and the number of student athletes um, that they're, you know, spending money on for scholarships and room and board and travel and everything else. And they're having to make really tough decisions. And I've sat with athletic departments as they've made decisions, um, not during this round, but in the past when they've considered cutting sports. And it is a gut-wrenching conversation. Anyone who thinks that this is easy for athletic departments or that they're somehow, you know, being callous or cruel, I've sat in on these conversations. I've seen these guys choke up about it as they think about having to tell their coaches or their student-athletes or their fans that they've made this decision. No one who works in college athletics wants to take a scholarship um, or wants to take sports away from a student athlete. No one. Um, they care so deeply for these student athletes that it's a really difficult decision, but they're looking at, you know, huge revenue losses from the men's basketball tournament not being played, um, you know, to all spring sports not being played, a football season that we're pretty sure isn't going to look like full stadiums. Who knows if there's a second round of the virus, what happens to the men's basketball tournament next year? And so they're having to make these plans for next fiscal year, not knowing exactly what things are going to look like they've laid employees off they've furloughed people you know coaches and administrators have taken pay cuts you know everybody is trying to figure out how to make their budget work in the current climate and i think it's really difficult decisions being made Um, and as any revenue source becomes smaller they have to look at how to continue to maintain the athletic department people just hear about the football and the basketball money and they think that you know all these athletic departments are just floating in cash but there's all these other sports they sponsor that not only don't make money, they actively lose money. And so, you know, football and men's basketball money 
goes to support that sport and those sports. And it looks really different at every school because, yes, at some of the Power Five schools, we see these huge, you know, coach salaries and the conversation is around, you know, why are they getting all the money and the student athletes aren't getting any. But particularly as you get into the group of five, the mid-majors, um, you know, and down into D2 and that sort of thing, you know, that that's not the situation and there's not enough money to go around. And so, unfortunately, I think we're going to continue to see cuts not only to sports, um, but to athletic director, uh, athletic department staff as well. Yeah. And that, that brings up something, you know, that I'm just curious about whether you have an idea of this. I've heard certain numbers as to how many schools around the country, how many athletics departments actually make money each year. But, you know, what have you heard regarding that? Like how, how much are athletics departments actually bringing in after everything is paid for, after all the expenses for the different sports have been paid? Depends on how you look at it. Um, I spent a whole chapter in my book on the business of college sports talking about this because, you know, it's not as easy as just looking at the athletic department's financial statements. When I first started reporting on this and started pulling statements, you know, what I learned was you also need to get a hold of the university's financial statements. And then you got to start tracking transactions back and forth because quite often the university is getting the better end of the deal with various transactions it has with the athletic department. Um, you know, for example, most athletic departments, not all, but most athletic departments pay out-of-state tuition for out-of-state student-athletes to the university. And so they're paying that upcharge, you know, between being an in-state and an out-of-state student. It doesn't actually cost more to educate an out-of-state student, um, but the university is charging its own athletic department for that upcharge. So in addition to that, we see athletic departments that have to pay for parking on game days. So they're cutting checks every season for things like parking back to the university. You know, all of the merchandise sales that happen on game day and all that licensing revenue, quite often the university gets 50%, all the way up to 100% at some schools, goes back to the university. And so we often see revenue generated by the athletic department that ends up back at the university. And I read a really interesting report years ago, um, a study that a couple of professors, uh, economic professors did, and they looked at financial statements from athletic departments and universities and tried to normalize the transactions uh, as if there were going to be arm's length transactions between the athletic department and the university. And when they did that, far more athletic departments looked like they were making money than before. So USA Today usually has a piece every year where they talk about how many athletic departments are making money, and it's usually like 19 or 21 or something like that. But in reality, if you started normalizing the transactions between athletic departments and universities, you'd see that number raise. And then you also have to keep in mind that athletic departments aren't for-profit entities. So they are not trying to maximize their profits. That's not their intent or their goal. They are a nonprofit. They are mostly trying to spend everything that they make. Um, and at some schools, they're not making enough to cover their expenses. And they're using student fees or subsidies from the university, particularly as you get into, you know, the group of five that play football, you get into the mid-majors and basketball, you know, a lot of those schools are relying on student fees or on uh, subsidies from the university. So it really varies depending on what school we're talking about. Yeah, that that's really interesting, just kind of the dichotomy between the university and the athletics department, right? The relationship and how maybe they're sharing that revenue and, and bouncing things off of one, one another. 
because you know what I had heard too was around that twenty to twenty five mark, right? Is maybe the amount of or the amount of schools that actually are bringing in money, and most of those are the big football schools, you know, the Alabama, Georgia, yeah. those kinds of schools. So it's interesting that you you would suggest that it, maybe it's a little bit more than that, really, in reality. I do think so. I think if you kind of looked at the transactions that are happening back and forth, the number would be higher. Now, certainly there are a lot of schools who are spending more than they make, um, but I don't think the number is as low as 19 or 20. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, with that, another interesting point that you brought up in your discussion was about college players unionizing. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I think one of the funniest things with the whole NIL discussion is everybody's excited that, you know, NCAA football games, uh, for video games are going to be coming back and all of that, that type of stuff. But, you know, others are saying, well, you know, you, you can't really do that unless you get some licensing agreements and you have kind of a union, uh, trying to figure all of that out. Now, do you have you heard anything about maybe unions uh, coming to college sports, or if other unions, maybe like a professional union like the NFLPA or the, you know, MLBPA would would do stuff like that? I've seen a few different plans for group licensing. I'm still not sure. I've seen one that that totally works and makes sense. You know, we had the union discussion years ago. Northwestern wanted to unionize. Um, but I remember looking at that because that ended up being something I wrote about in my book as well. And the problem is something like half of the states don't allow state employees to unionize. So if student athletes at state universities were considered employees, they wouldn't be able to unionize because their state doesn't allow state employees to unionize. So you'd have some schools that could where student athletes could unionize and some where they couldn't. Um, and then that obviously creates a competitive imbalance. So I think it's really complicated when you start trying to figure out how the group licensing would work. I don't think it's going to be through a union of college uh, of student athletes Um, but I do think that there's a viable way to figure out group licensing but it's going to require some uh, participation by universities because so much of their intellectual property is at play here and in the past they have been reluctant to get involved Um, but I think that that conversation is coming up again and it's going to look different this time because there is such a uh, sort of clamoring by fans, not just for the NCAA football game, but also uh, for other things that would require group licensing. So I think people are still trying to figure out what can you do, what what can it look like that you know is the least burden or liability for athletic departments, but allows uh, for those group licensing deals so something like an NCAA football can come back. Yeah. Hey, I mean, I, I'd be all for it. I'm I'm a big fan of those football games. I think as well as a lot of other people. So. I'm hoping that they can work it out. But, um, you know, just as we look at all of this, as we look at NIL in general, you know, what is your takeaway? What do you expect going forward? And what do you think maybe the timeline is going to be if NIL does happen? Yeah, I mean, I think Florida has really accelerated it now, but the NCAA's timeline, uh, I believe, have them that they would have them passing legislation in January at their convention. So that still gives them time to do that and enact it for the 2021-2022 uh, school year, which would be on Florida's timeline as well. So I think the NCAA will keep working towards its own legislation while at the same time lobbying Congress. 
Um, so a, a lot of it is going to hinge on whether Congress gets involved in, or not and whether if it's the NCAA can come up with legislation that appeases the states like California and Florida that have already passed legislation or the ones who are close to it at this point um, where they would all, you know, uh, sort of fall in line so that we have the same rules across all the 50 states. 